0: Well, it is 4 o'clock, so we'll go ahead and get started. Let me tell you just a little bit about myself. I have a few claims to fame. One is that I'm married to the most beautiful girl in the world. I have been for 29 years. Uh, I was born in Hollywood, California. didn't last there very long. I guess I'm not entertaining enough. Um, Something else that's important to know about me... Uh, I am the daughter of a, I am, I am the father of a dis- disabled daughter. Uh, about four years ago, my daughter was uh, in class at school and a guy came into the classroom with a gun in a backpack. The gun was loaded and the safety was off. And he set the backpack on the floor and the gun discharged and the bullet lodged in my daughter's spine at T9 and 10, and she's paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, I work with a, a network of about 280 organizations doing a ministry called Community Health Evangelism in about 93 countries. And one of the things that I purposed after that injury was that we needed to mainstream disability in our community development programs. So there are a couple of people here today that are helping do that, Terry Graham and Diana Mood with Global Transformation Network. Uh, I have a number of friends here. I'm not sure why they're here, they're here because they've heard this all before. Um, but for those of you who haven't, I hope we can give you something that you can take away and use. Uh, the title of the seminar is a worldwide a survey of worldwide holistic practices, um, and I guess the reason I qualify to teach this is because I've traveled quite a bit around the world and seen a number of holistic ministries, and so that's why they gave this topic to me. I want to begin with my own definition of holistic, and this is not scientific, as you can see. I think that to be holistic is to be uh, completely obedient to everything that Jesus commended. I grew up in a a church tradition uh, that, because of a fight in the last century, had an aversion to social action. And evangelism was the mission of the church, and it was all about proclaiming the forgiveness of sins. I went to the mission field as a church planting missionary, my senior colleagues said to me, if you feed somebody today, they're going to be hungry again tomorrow. If you save their soul today, they're safe forever. And so the message to me was, you're not here to uh, minister to the physical needs of people, you're here to preach. And that's what I did, until I became the pastor of a small church in the city of Iloilo. And for the first time in my life, I came face to face with poverty. There were people in the church who struggled to have enough food to eat from day to day, uh, who, their children would die from uh, from simple things uh, unnecessarily, it seemed to me. Uh, they couldn't keep their kids in school. And in middle-class America, I had never seen uh, that before. And I don't know how a person like me could go through, could spend my whole life having quiet times And go to Bible college for four years, to seminary for three years, uh, become pastor of a church and preach for three years, go to the mission field and plant a church, and not see in the scripture God's heart for the poor. Uh, But it's everywhere. And so I remember sitting with a group of men, uh, the most of them I had baptized, They were going to become the elders of the church that I was planting. And I asked them, what is the mission of the church? And uh, they said to me, the mission of the church would be to love God and love your neighbor. And I said, no, the mission of the church is to save souls, and saved souls love God and love their neighbor. Well, uh, I won the argument, but they won the war. And the churches that I planted as a church planter... Uh, were on the margins of community. Uh, I felt like I was running around the outside of the community yelling about the forgiveness of sins. And some people would hear me and they would come and join me and then they were hated by the community just like I was. And from the perspective of the community, the only thing that I brought was a theological argument. And I came to realize that unless we bring both the truth and the touch of Jesus, unless we're willing to minister in word and deed, unless we're willing to stop asking which command is most important and ask the question, how do we obey everything that Jesus commanded? We're going to remain on the margins. But God God doesn't intend that for His church. God intends for His church to be the agent of transformation in communities. He said of his people, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And so I've been on a journey. The journey for me was simple. I was part of a tradition that separated evangelism and social action two things that belong together. And the question for me was how do I bring them back together in my ministry practice? And I could tell you that journey too, but then we wouldn't get to other things that I think are important. But another way of thinking about holistic ministry is to think about ministry to the whole person. Uh, The scriptures say about Jesus that he grew in wisdom and stature. Am I not talking loud enough? No, this projects into the... Recording. Oh, so I'm not being recorded. You're, you're doing fine. No. I'm doing fine. And you're going to do better. I'm going to do better. <laughs> <laughs> and I can just go in a pocket or in a belt loop. Okay, I got, I got so many things in pockets and on belt loops here. Oh, okay. Now, I work out in villages. We sit around in a circle and great. we draw things on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> so these microphones and things, they make me really uncomfortable. Oh, yeah.
1: Am I doing all right? Yes.
0: Okay, I'm doing all right. Good. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, the scriptures say about Jesus that uh, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He uh, he grew mentally, he grew physically, he grew socially, and he grew spiritually. And another way of looking at holistic ministry uh, is it is ministry to the whole person and to the whole community. Um, And that means that our ministries need to be integrated. We can't be siloed and focused on single issues, but we need to work in a multi-sectoral way, uh, thinking about uh, micro-business and business and uh, agriculture and health and social addictions and all of these Uh, all of these things together. In the same way that we are whole people and we can't separate the spiritual from the emotional or from the social, uh, problems tend to be complex. I heard about a study that was done in China where 60% of the abject poor in this area that was studied, 60% of the uh, income of the abject poor was used to buy medications for diseases that were preventable. And so if you're thinking about um, how do you help people like that, you might say, well, they don't have enough income. And so you decide to go and do a micro-enterprise program with them, uh, set up some finance, and give them a small loan. And their child gets sick, and they spend the money you loaned them as capital for their business on their child, and now they're in a worse situation than they were before you came because they owe you money and they still don't have a business. And so uh, when we talk about holistic ministry, we need to think about multisectoral. We need to think uh, um, about ministering to the whole person and the whole community. Now, that may not be a scientific definition, but I I wanted to put that out to you because I want you to know where I'm coming from when I talk about holistic ministry and holistic ministry practice. There are different ways of working with communities and ways of working with people. Uh, There's a book out by Dr. Brian uh, Fickert called When Helping Hurts. How many of you have read that? If you haven't read that, you need to read that. Uh, It's available over here. I'll sell it to you for $14. Um, That's our revenue plan. That keeps me traveling so I can keep teaching. But um, great book. Uh, And he has a much more detailed uh, description of the kinds of action that we can take in a community when we uh, go to serve. Uh, But I'll simplify it for the purposes of this seminar into uh, three kinds of action. We'll call them relief and betterment and development and i think the important thing to understand is that if you do relief when it's development that's needed you create dependencies and you reinforce a mindset of poverty you do harm when you do development and it's relief that's needed people die in the flood right and so we need to know what is the appropriate response to the situation that we're dealing with in, in order to um, to effectively help people and not do harm. So uh, talking about three ways of responding, um, relief is done when there's a disaster, there's a crisis, um, there's an emergency, it's a life-threatening situation, uh, people When they're drowning in the river, don't need you to come and yell from the shore about how they can swim, uh, how they can learn to swim. Right? That's the time that you throw them a a lifeboat and and drag them to the shore. Um, So relief is something that's done in a disaster or a crisis. Um, It is the type of action that you do. Is it's rescue, it's distribution. It's delivering services. Uh, a lot of times we want to do relief in development situations. And so what we do is we go and we give away things. Uh, we do something for them. Uh, we deliver some service that they actually could do for themselves if we weren't... Um, Reinforcing their dependencies. So um, the resources for relief action come from the outside. The ownership, uh, the people who control the program, so to speak, also are outsiders. The duration of a relief project should be short term and the end result of a relief project should be Rescue or restoration. And then uh, sometimes people will talk about after a disaster, there's um, people fall off the cliff. They fall below the line uh, of their ability to survive. Uh, And rescue comes in and pulls them back up above that line. And then there may be a short time for rehabilitation when you bring them back to where they were before the flood hit. Um, But I haven't talked about rehabilitation here. I want to move to a second concept which is betterment. Uh, Betterment is usually focused at specific needs. Uh, Somebody can't read. um, They have poor hygiene. um, They need a job. Uh, And so you come alongside and you help those individuals improve. You give them some skill that's aimed at uh, their particular specific problem. And we call that betterment. The kind of action that you do is helping and teaching. The resources come from the outside again. Ownership is usually by outsiders. The duration is medium term. And the end result is improved skills, usually for the individual, and new capacities. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this uh, seminar talking about relief and betterment for a couple of reasons. I think that when we start to think about ministering to the needs of people, uh, this is where we naturally go. This is where we want to begin. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go over there and I'm gonna do something for them. Uh, that's the first step. And then we realize, well, maybe there's some way that I can help that individual do something for themselves. So we move beyond that to mentoring uh, and, and tutoring tutoring child, school children or teaching English or teaching some livelihood or um, doing those kinds of things. Uh, But it's seldom, I think, that especially in the church, we get beyond relief and betterment to development. And that's really where I want to focus today. Development is something that you do when there's chronic poverty. Um, There is a life situation in the community that needs to be improved. The kind of work that you do, the kind of action that you take when you're doing development, It's not rescue. It's not doing things for people. It's not helping kinds of things. Uh, It is uh, raising awareness and helping people to see why they have some of the problems they have and what resources are available to them to solve that problem. Uh, It is mobilizing people to work together uh, against their problem. It is organizing and it is training. So it's a whole different type of action that you take in a community when you're working on a development uh, track. Um, the resources for development, uh, we say you want to maximize the use of local resources. And there are a number of reasons for that. I'm a church planter, so I, I can tell the, I-, I can say what I'm about to say, and step on my own toes, <laughs> all right? But when I, was, when I was sent out to do church planting, uh, I was taught to take the lead, to lead people to Christ, to bring them together, to build a church building with outside money, uh, to begin to disciple some leaders, send them off to seminary, and hopefully somewhere down the road, they'll be able to take over what I built, and what I did as a church planter was set up a prototype that could not be multiplied. In fact, it was difficult to sustain because it was built with outside resources. Um, I think that one of the most harmful things we may do uh, for church planting movements is to go into communities with our money and build structures that become the prototype that have to be imitated if you're going to be a successful church planter in that context. And so in order for there to be progress, the thinking of the people is we have to bring in outside resource. And the reason you want to maximize the use of local resource is because you want to set up prototypes that can be multiplied. You want people to be able to, uh, uh, to do for themselves and to teach their neighbor how to do it as well. And so whenever we're, we're importing resources from the outside, we're taking away from the community uh, ability for it to sustain and multiply what's happening. Duration uh, development is long term. And one of the reasons that people don't get real excited about community health evangelism right out the chute is because we tell them that you're going to have to spend three to five years in a community. But the truth is that development is human development. Um, It's not about technologies and, um, um, and things and stuff. Uh, it's about people developing capacities, um, changing their worldview and their mindset, um, seeing resources that are available to them, and working together in new ways to achieve what they couldn't achieve before. It's about it's about human development, and that takes time. You don't develop people overnight. Do you want to know why we've spent billions and billions of dollars uh, from the West on poverty alleviation and disease prevention programs, and we've failed to alleviate poverty? (laughs) It's because we have worked from a model, which I call the old professionalism, that says professionals come to the community, they assess the needs identify the problems go away blueprint a plan raise the funds and then come back and deliver a service to the people so if I'm um, if I am inside the village and I'm holding this problem and the first thing that happens when you come to me is I throw the problem to you now you're holding it So who's going to think about that problem now? You are. Whose resources are going to be used to solve the problem? Yours. Right? Who's going to grow and develop in their understanding? You are. What happens to them? What happens to me? I threw the problem to you. I become passive. So rather than being an active participant in my own development process, I'm waiting for you to deliver a service. And I learned that as a habit. I learned then that the way problems are solved is somebody else comes in with a skill, and so I wait for them. And um, that's harm. That's doing harm. Which is why it's important to uh, think about the the different ways of working with community and the context in which we're in. So what is the end result of uh, development? It is progress. It is human capacity. Um, It is transformation of a whole community. And I won't take time to define transformation at this point because... I'll show you some pictures of it later. Um, Some different approaches that I've seen as I've traveled around the world. Um, I've seen community-based approaches. Uh, Community-based approach is where a trainer comes in from the outside um, and they work directly with the community. They do awareness activities, uh, helping the community to participate in a process of identifying resources, analyzing the causes of their problems, um, uh, coming together and mobilizing to work together uh, with a plan against their own problems. That is a community-based approach. The whole community is involved taking action. Uh, it's not um, it, it's different than a church based or a church initiated approach. I have seen this as well and i 'll give you some examples but a church a church based approach would be when um, trainers come in to the outs- from the outside and they work with a church and they train people in the church to do problem solving and to visit their neighbors and that kind of thing and the program kind of becomes a church program. There is also a church-initiated program where the church is trained to reach out into its community and do a community-based program. Another approach that I've seen is family-based. There are some situations that I've seen, uh, uh, Vietnam, uh, China, some of these uh, kind of places, Central Asia... Um, uh, communist countries, post-communist countries. Governments have an aversion to any kind of organization. If you're going to bring people together and start working with people as a group, you're going to raise red flags. And so there are times when you have to go under the radar. And what you do in that kind of a situation is you train a family to work with the community in kind of one-on-one relationships. So, I go to this home, and the child has diarrhea, and I teach the family how to prevent diarrheas and how to do oral rehydration. Um, Or, this family over here uh, uh, has children who are malnourished, but they have some land, and so you work with them to do a kitchen garden. Uh, This family doesn't have clean water, so you go and you work with them, but it's family based. It's me, my family, working with individuals around me in a holistic way. I've seen government-initiated government programs. Um, and this this is difficult for us in the church, right? Can we work with the government on their initiatives against poverty and disease? Well, I think the church is needed. And I'll show you an example of that later. I think we can partner with them. And then their are non-profit and NGO-based approaches. I want to show you some, I want to tell you some stories, um, show you some pictures of holistic development as it's unfolded um, before my eyes around the world. And then hopefully we'll have some time to talk about it later. But community-based approaches Let me take you to Central Asia. When we went into this community, when our team went into this community, the elders said to the team, unless you have been sent by God, you can't solve our problem. Their problem was they were apricot farmers and their trees had been barren for six years. And more than 300 men had left the community and gone to Russia to find work. Some of them had second families and weren't coming back. The wives were left behind to take care of children with inadequate resources. And so for them, uh, this was not just an agricultural problem. It was a social problem. It was an economic problem. It was a physical problem. And it was a spiritual problem. What they articulated was, we have been cursed by Allah. God has done this to us. And unless you have been sent by God, you can't solve this problem. So the team went and sat with a community. This is a community-based approach. The team went and sat with a community of farmers and asked them to describe their problem. And they said their problem was a gypsy moth. Now, our team knew nothing about the gypsy moth. So the team asked them, well, what do you know about the gypsy moth? And they said, well, the gypsy moth lays its eggs in the dirt and then the caterpillars crawl across the ground and up the trunk of the tree and they eat the leaves. And so um, as they talked about it, the community came up with this solution. They would tie cotton claws around the trunks of the trees and when the caterpillars crawled across the ground and tried to get up the trunk of the tree, they would get caught in the cotton cloth. And so they would send the kids out then in the morning to smash all of the caterpillars in the cotton cloth. And they also sent the kids to find the egg sacs in the dirt and to destroy them before they hatched. They also knew that in a city nearby there was um, an agriculturalist, there was a government office, and... They went there and got an agriculturalist who came and helped them with pesticides. And this was the miracle in the community. Within one year, the trees recovered. And when I came into the community, they were having a celebration. They were celebrating a $60,000 harvest. And uh, since that time, 300, more than 300 men have come back from Russia And been reunited with their families. One woman told the team, if just six trees would bear fruit, my husband would not have to go to Russia. And so the the husbands came back, the families were reunited. And now uh, they have been taught to dry and wash these apricots and add value preparing them for export, and they're exporting apricots from this community now around the world. When I came into the community, they took me up to see um, this man. He was the principal of the school, and I think they probably took me there because he may have been the only one in the community that spoke English. And so we exchanged formalities, and... Um, I introduced myself, and he introduced himself. And I felt compelled to pray. Now, I knew I was in a Muslim context. I knew if I did the wrong things, I could uh, endanger our team. But the impression was strong that God wanted me to pray. And so I asked this principal, I said, Do you mind if I pray in Jesus' name? And he said, no, please. And so I prayed. And I said, Lord, I just want to thank you for the blessing that you're bringing to this community and for the way you are revealing yourself to them. And I pray that you would continue to pour out your blessing on this community and that you would continue to reveal yourself to them. And when I looked up, uh, this man said to me, Sir, there are many stones in Tajikistan and our hearts are not stone. There are many rivers in Tajikistan and our hearts flow like rivers with love for you. In the room there were a couple of ladies who had been trained in perinatal care and the woman who wrote the material is here with us. Charlene, why don't you stand up? Um, But these were these were women who had been trained to go into the homes and work with pregnant mothers and help them have a, a healthy pregnancy and a healthy delivery and know how to breastfeed afterwards, and all those kind of things which I, as a man shouldn't get involved with right <laughs> but I, I I walked out I walked out of the school and one of these ladies did something that was completely. Counterculture. It was it, in a cultural context. It was unthinkable. She came over to me and she grabbed me, and she looked me in the eyes, and she started to shake like this, and she said, "Sir, I just want you to know, we serve the same God." And I don't know if she had come to faith in Christ or not, uh, but I do know that the door was open. Uh, for Christ to be proclaimed in this community. See, I had been choosing which command to obey um, and I had been failing to bring both the truth and the touch of Jesus. Let them see uh, let them see his love and his mind but they need that. And w- when we put those things together, the bird can fly. Those are two wings of the same bird. And that's what was happening in this community. I want to tell you about another community-based program. This is in the Philippines. Anybody here been to the Philippines? All right. Uh, This is in the west central portion of the Philippines on the island of Panay. Um, Do you you, you speak a Philippine language? I'm half. Oh, you're half. Oh do you what do you know what your parent where your parent came from Your He speaks Oh, Kaiblo ako Ilongo. Kaibolo magilongo No okay <laughs> I um I speak the language um, that's spoken in this community in Iloilo uh, I had heard about some wonderful things that were happening there um I had heard that uh, the mayor had been elected as the outstanding mayor of the Philippines for three consecutive terms. Uh, That this this community uh, in the Philippines they have what they call a they used to have what they call a clean and green competition, and they got communities competing with each other uh, to win an award from the national government for community health initiatives. And there were certain standards that they they had to meet and criteria by which they were judged. And this community had been in the top 10 of the country uh, and had won in their state, their province, so many times that the other uh, municipalities asked them to drop out of the competition so somebody else could win. As I'm, uh, and what happened in this community, there was a mayor His name was Mayor Palabrica. He was a believer. And he came to our CHE team and he said to them, uh, would you come and train uh, train our government people to implement your program in the community? And so as I came into this community along the road, there are signs. It's not advertising beer and Pepsi and, you know, it's, this way to Bingo One, but Jesus is the only way to heaven. The only the only leader worth following is the one who's following Christ. And then when you got to the entrance of the community, there was this, this sign that said, Welcome to Bingawan, Iloilo, a Christian community. Uh, that sign is now a cement monument in front of their community. Um, I had heard rumors that there was a jail in this community, but no prisoners. And I thought that was too good to be true. I thought it had to be a fabrication. And so I went in with my skepticism, and I asked Mayor Palabreca if he would take me to see the jail. So he took me over to the jail, and these two jailers were standing outside. They opened the door, and inside the jail there was a table with a flower vase in the middle and a Bible on either side. And uh, there was a television in the corner. And one of them joked with me and said, we even put a television in here and we can't get anybody to come inside. So I turned to the mayor and I said, come on. There had been six gambling rings driven out of town. And this was not a very large town. Um, And I said, "You, you certainly must have use for this this jail at some time. And he said, well, there is a guy in town that gets drunk and beats his wife. And I have to, pick, I get called to go pick him up. I give him a cup of coffee and the keys and tell him when he sobers up to let himself out. <laughs> it's like Mayberry, right? <laughs> um, and I don't know if he was joking or if that was true, but I, I was still skeptical. And so I went back to the municipal hall and I'm standing there and I meet this guy. And we start to talk, and I ask who he is, and he says, he's an attorney. And I said, "Um, well, uh, where do you live? He said, I live, he said, the name of the place, but I used to live here. Uh, I said, why don't you live here anymore? He said, well, I didn't say that. He volunteered. I had to move away from uh, Bingawan because I'm an attorney, and there was nothing to litigate. (laughs) Uh, the mayor himself was an agriculturalist and so he encouraged all the people in the community to, to have kitchen gardens. And so they had faith gardens, food always in the home and this is one of those gardens. Um, these are Che workers. These are, are ladies from the community who have been trained to go into the home and work with families. They teach about clean water and sanitize the drinking water did i say this already no no okay they they i've said this so many times today that <laughs> this is my sales pitch you come to my booth and i'll tell you this all right they they teach about clean water and they help the family sanitize their drinking water and and then they teach about the living water and they open the scriptures and they share the word uh, with a family, and when people in the the homes they're visiting come to Christ, they form small groups, and those same health workers uh, disciple those small groups and those small groups then can uh, build an existing church or they can be brought together to form a new church if there's not a church in the area. Uh, they can become house churches, cell uh, churches, uh, part of a church planting movement, but that 's how Church planting is done through uh, a CHE program. But these are examples of community based programs. These women are um, CHEs who have been taught to go into homes and work with families. They're wearing shirts that say on the front, Community Health Evangelism. On the back, it says, I serve my community without pay. But you should hear their testimonies, you can see the transformation in their face. They've gone from being hopeless, despairing, to people filled with hope and vision who can not only do for themselves but have something to give to others. And that—that that is transformation. That's what it's all about. This is a a woman on a committee. Another thing that happens in a community-based program, while you have the health workers that are going into the homes, you put together a development committee and train that committee. The community actually chooses leaders from their community and uh, forms the committee. And then you as the trainer train the committee in project management. So the, the, um, the committee then works on projects like it might be uh, piping water into every home or putting up a little pharmacy or uh, fixing a road or schools or... That kind of thing. This uh, lady here is a member of a development committee, uh, and what she's holding in her hand is a bronze award given to her by the president of the Philippines from Malacañang. She was called to Malacañang, which is the, the equivalent of the Philippine, I mean, the U.S. White House, and their community was given this award. When our team started working there, um, there were no paved roads. They all lived in temporary houses. There was no place for people to go to the toilet. You had to be careful where you stepped because there was uh, there was brown stuff everywhere. The men were sitting idle in the streets drinking all day long. Uh, the women were bearing the burden all all by themselves. And uh, when I came, after the program had been in operation, this is what we saw. They had paved roads. They had piped water into every home. They had a little pharmacy. Um, people had purpose and vision. And uh, that's, that's really what, what we want to see. The other thing they had in this community was what they called the Life Community Learning Center. When people started to come to Christ... Um, and the community began to develop, they felt they needed three things. They needed a school, they needed a community center, and they needed a church. So they built one building. They called it the Life Community Learning Center. It was the school in the daytime. It was the community center in the evening, and it was the church on the weekend. This church belonged to that community. I would dare you to try to remove it. Churches that aren't holistic in their ministry practice, uh, who find themselves on the margins, those churches can go away and the community doesn't care. But when the, the, the church takes its place as the agent of transformation, you cannot remove those churches from their communities. That church belongs to the community. I went to Guatemala and saw another community-based program. Um, 149 families, 30 of them had come to Christ. All 149 contributed large sums financially and labor to help build a church building for those 30 believing families. And when that church building was dedicated, all 149 families were there that's because the church took its place as the recognized agent of transformation and the church was not putting on programs trying to draw a crowd so that they could proclaim the forgiveness of sins they were out in the community doing ministries of compassion and justice caring for the sick caring for the orphan and the widow ministering to the poor, and not just delivering a service, but lifting them out of cycles of poverty and disease. That's what transformational ministry should do. Um, Let me take you to a government-initiated approach. This is in Papua New Guinea. I think I'm supposed to be done in six minutes. Is that right? We're not going to make it. (laughs) Let me, tell you, let me tell you about Papua, Papua New Guinea. This is a government-initiated uh, approach. When our team went to Papua New Guinea, um, actually I went to the Department of Health and met with the man who was responsible for the community health initiatives in all of Papua New Guinea for the next decade. And he said to me, there's only one institution in this country with the capacity to mobilize enough people to do what needs to be done in the area of community health, and that's the church. I need someone to mobilize the church. And basically I said to him, I can mobilize the church, but I can't silence it. Uh, If they're going to go in and serve, they're going to speak as well. And he leaned forward and said to me, the World Health Organization and AusAid who are funding these programs say that health is social, mental, physical, and spiritual well-being, the only problem is they don't understand spiritual. As far as I'm concerned, spiritual is Christian. And he gave us permission to work with district health offices across the country, identify Christian workers, and train them to go into the communities and train the church in the area of community health. With Within a couple of years, we were in more than 300 communities in Papua New Guinea, and the government was saying that our program was the only thing that was working. It was, it, it was government-initiated, but the church was partnering with the government in their own community health initiatives. Um, and when I went, uh, these are some of the things that I saw, village after village. In fact, the the Training team in this area came to me and said, People are imitating what we're doing all over the mountainside, and we haven't even been to their village. Should I tell them to stop? (laughs) But uh, these are latrines. In the Eastern Highlands, in the district of Lufa, when our team began work there, I was with the district health officer, and he said, We have been trying for 30 years to get people in this area to use latrines. uh, And only 3% of the population uses them. I said, why? He said, because traditional belief here says that evil spirits inhabit human waste and hide in dark corners. If you build a latrine, you're building a spirit house that nobody wants to go into. The government was failing in their initiative because the problem was spiritual. And a year later, I came back and I saw these latrines everywhere. And not only did they build latrines, but they had pathways to them, decorated pathways to them. I went to Bible college and seminary and I was taught church planting and I was taught the indicators of spiritual growth. The indicators of spiritual growth, people are reading their Bible, they're going to church, um, they're witnessing, um, they're praying. Um, Nobody ever told me That a latrine would be an indicator of spiritual growth. But that's exactly what this was. And you know what? You'll never see this unless your ministries are integrated. If you're working on one side or the other, you'll never see this response. We have to integrate our programs. So um, I was taken to another place in the Eastern Highlands. In this district, there were 26 villages. They had been warring for 16 years. The school was shut down. And um, no child had been educated in this district in 16 years. Our team came in and began to work with them. I came back a year later, and this is what I saw. Now what this is, is a footpath between two villages that previously had been warring. And not only did they straighten out this footpath, they went down to the river and they brought up rocks and they uh, they built retaining walls and they decorated the pathway. Nobody in all of my Bible college and seminary education ever told me that a footpath would be an indicator of spiritual growth. But that's exactly what it was. They took me out into uh, an open field at the end of this visit And people from the different villages had gathered there. There were a couple of tribal chiefs. Uh, The one in the G-string there made a presentation to me. He held up the bow and arrows that you see there. And he said, uh, our forefathers gave us these weapons and taught us to use them. Then he took one of the arrows and he said, this is the kind of arrow that we use to kill pigs. And he put it back. Then he took out another one. He said, this is the kind that we use to kill people, to kill each other. He put it back and he handed the whole thing to me. It's on my wall in my office. And he said to me, I want to give these to you because you have come here and you've taught us a different way of life. You've taught us to live at peace with one another. For eight years, there's been peace in that valley. And children are being educated again. That's the impact that can be had when our ministries are integrated. I want to share just some, I could take you to India and tell you some stories there and we don't have time. Uh, We never have time. That's the problem with America. We all have watches, but we don't have time. Um, What happened here? I got this in here twice. There we go. Um, Some of the principles, I think, operating principles uh, that make for successful holistic ministry as I have seen it around the world. There is community ownership. Um, the uh, uh, the, The people themselves see what is being done as their work. They have taken initiative. They're no longer passive recipients, but they're active participants in their own development process. Uh, They're using local resources and appropriate uh, technologies. Another principle, I think, is multiplication. They are sharing knowledge. They're using transferable concepts. Um, Programs or ideas are multiplying and they're using local resources. Another common factor in successful holistic ministries um, is that they are development-focused. It's not about just delivering a service. It's about building the capacity of people, empowering them to do for themselves. Um, There is integration. Uh, it's It's not just dealing with a single issue. It's working with the community wherever they are. If it's schools they need, if it's peace and reconciliation, um, you know, whatever the issue is in the community, if it's latrines, uh, our programs are integrated. And participatory learning. What I have just done for the last 50 minutes will produce nothing in terms of development. (laughs) Maybe it will give you some ideas. But people tend to act on their own ideas. And what we need to do is engage them in a process of analysis. Let them participate in analyzing problems and creating solutions. And then you're going to see the kind of transformation that was visualized for you. So that's it. We're done. Thank you for coming. Yeah.